And today we're talking about being a primary faith trainer, and, and I've spoken on this many times, especially at our parent summit. And so I think that's why I was having a little bit of like a block, a mental block today, because I was like, I've done this a million times. And it was really, I'm just excited because I feel like God put a fresh twist on it today. And I'm not just speaking to parents today. I'm speaking to everyone that's in this room because whether you are a parent or not, you are the primary, you're a primary faith trainer in your own life, right? You, um, yes, you come to church and you listen to a pastor speak, but you are responsible for your own um, spiritual care, right? You're responsible for learning and growing and you're responsible for your home. And so I'm speaking to everyone today, including myself. And um, I need... I need an assistant today. Um, hey, Derek, you want to assist me? Okay. Derek's going to come and help me up here. Because my arms aren't long enough to hold this string. So, Derek, I'm going to have you kind of stand over on that side. And I'm going to come over here. All right, thank you. All right, so this string represents 168 hours. There are 168 hours in one week. So this string represents one whole week. Yeah, it's pretty long. I think so. I, when I think of time, I think it goes by a lot faster. So 168 hours in one week. And if you can see this little blue spot that I'm holding right here, this is one inch. And this one inch rem represents about the one hour on average that most pe people spend at church. And that's I mean, that's even kind of generous because we know that people don't come every week, right? On average, a lot of people come every other week, every couple of weeks. Or maybe you do come more than, maybe you're here every Sunday and every Wednesday, and so yours is like right here, these little two hours. <laughs> but when you think of your week and that little bit and the rest, now, of course, we know you're sleeping a little bit in there. <laughs> if me, it's like you're sleeping and it's like this inches here. <laughs> but I mean, that's not a lot of time when you consider how many hours are in a week, correct? Very little. All right. Everyone give Derek a hand. Thank you, Derek, for holding my string. <laughs> All right. So 168 hours, one hour out of 168 is not enough, especially when we're thinking about children. When we're thinking about what they are inundated with throughout the week, you know, on average, you know, you can cut off some time for sleeping, but other than that, you know, they're spending time in school, spending time on TV, electronics, media, social media. Think about it in our own lives. We're spending time at work, um, doing work at home, doing work out. We're um, maybe um, spending time with friends, spending time on social media, eating. <laughs> There's so many things that take up our time. And we give just this little itty bitty part, one inch, one little hour um, for spiritual training, coming to church. And it's not enough. And so we need to have a partnership between the church and home. It needs to be more than just coming to church. Discipleship needs to be more than just coming once or twice a week or once or twice a month. It has to be more. It has to be every day. It has to be a lifestyle. 
And so today we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, which are my, um, just my favorite section of the Bible. And I, am, am I doing this? or I can't even see up there. Thanks. Okay. Just follow along. <laughs> um, okay, Deuteronomy. Oh, that's us. Deuteronomy 7. Come on, Emily. Deuteronomy 6. Sorry, it's D6. Deuteronomy 6. And this passage of scripture is called the Shema. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is called the Shema, and it is probably the most important passage of Scripture in uh, the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew Scripture. Um, the Shema was given to Israel before entering into the Promised Land. So they had been freed from slavery in Egypt. God freed them. They'd been wandering for 40 years, and they had proven themselves in the desert to not be very um, faithful, <laughs> right? Not very faithful to their covenant with God. So much so that God made them wander for 40 years and for a whole generation to die off before they could enter the promised land. And so in Deuteronomy, Moses is talking to this new generation of people, telling them, you have a covenant with God, and you are now going to be entering a land, the land of the Canaanites, and you need to be set apart. The Shema was what was going to set them apart from the Canaanites. And the Shema is so important that in... Um, in the Jewish religion, it is the prayer that they say every morning and every evening. If you've ever seen um, what's called a mezuzah, it's the little thing that they put on their doorways. Um, the Shema is actually written and is inside the mezuzah, and they touch every time they leave, um, come, and enter, come and go from their doorway. Um, so it's very important. And um, in a handwritten Torah scroll, so if you were to write out um, the Shema, the two letters, Ayin and Dalet, are enlarged in the first sentence. So in the first sentence, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word here is Shema. Shema is Hebrew for here. So when we're talking about the Shema, it's actually that first word here. And these two letters, Ayin and Dalet, are capitalized. You can kind of see that on the scroll up there. Together... These two letters form the word that means witness. So if you know anything, if you, if you don't know anything about he, the Hebrew alphabet, that's okay. I'm actually just learning. I decided to, um, I'm getting my master's, and I decided, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to go all out, and I'm going to learn the languages too. And the first assignment, before I can even start, is to memorize the Hebrew alphabet. And <laughs> don't ask me how it's going. <laughs> I got the first letter. <laughs> So it's, it's a lot, but I, I love words, and I love meanings, I love a good mystery, and the Hebrew alphabet, the Hebrew language, is just full of symbolism and meaning. Um, every word, or I'm sorry, every letter has a meaning behind it, 
as far as like, you know, what a definition, what it means, a symbol behind it, and even a number that it represents. And that number has meaning. So when I say I have to memorize the Hebrew alphabet, it's not just A, B, C, D. <laughs> I have to memorize the meaning and the number and the symbol. It's, it's a lot, but there's so much there. The reason I want to do it is because I feel like I can understand God's word so much better, right? The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. I want to know God's word, his actual word, what he's saying. And so Shema Israel, he is saying, this is how we are to be a witness. This is how the Israelites were to be a witness when they go into the promised land. They are to be set apart and different. Because even that first line, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That right there is different. That they believe in one God, monotheism. They don't believe in idols and many different gods. God is the one true God. Yahweh is the one true God. And so the Shema is a testimony of the sovereignty of God, what's, what he has done, and our primary duty to love him with our entire being. Everything that we are, right? It says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. I mean, this is so important that Jesus, in the New Testament, when he was asked what is the greatest commandment, this is what he said. The Shema, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. He had it in mind, too. But <laughs> love, just to love God with your whole being. And so I feel like before we can even get any into anything else about the Shema and anything else about being a faith trainer, we have to understand what it means to love God. What does it mean to love him with all that we are? So we're going to look at love today. We're going to look at um, the Hebrew word for love is ahava, coming from the root ahav. And ahava, the root word ahav, it means love, but really the root of it means to give. So when God is saying to love, love is an action. It is giving. Um, Hebrew, like I said, has these deep meanings. So we're going to go into each of these letters. Now, Hebrew is read from right to left. Not left to right like we read, but right to left. So the first letter of this word, ahava, is actually like the little X-looking one on the right. And this word is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's aleph. And aleph means one, one. It's the first letter, and God even says he is, in, you know, in Greek he says he is the alpha and omega, but he is the aleph and the tav, the first and the last, beginning and the end. And so for this word, ahava, to begin with the first letter, aleph, is showing that we are to love God first. Real ahava, real love, comes from loving God first, putting him first, right? It's the first commandment, to love God. Deuteronomy 6, the Lord is one, one, to love God, and he is first. The second letter of Ahava is He. It is actually the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Do you know the number five has a very important meaning in the Bible, right? So when we look at the number five, we can think of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the, of, um, the Jewish scriptures, the Torah. 
It's God's law. And in John chapter 14, verses 15 and 23, it says, If you love me, keep my commands, Jesus replied. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. So that, so, um, hey, the number five, if we love God, we will keep his commands, right? This is how we express ahava to God. This is how we show him our love is by obeying his commands. Following the Torah and obedience to God is an overflow of our love for God. Because we love him, we obey him. And it says, again, in the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with everything, right? That's number one. Love God first. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. So if we love God, we will obey. There's an action to it. We will obey. And then the third letter of Ahava is bet or vet. And it, um, it's number two. It's the second letter of the alphabet. But the symbol of it is a house representing the tabernacle or the temple. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So if we love God, we will obey his commands, and then we house, we are the temple, right? We house God's presence here on earth. And so we are supposed to be that witness that shows his true love and what his true love is. So ahava, this love, is the sum and the goal of the entire Bible. One word, love. It sums up the whole Bible because in John 3, 16, what does it say? He so loved that he gave. That is what God's love is. It is an action. It is giving. He loves us so much that he gave. And then God gave the Torah. He gave his law, his commands. And love, Jesus, is the fulfillment of that law. In Romans chapter 13, it says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So if we love God, we will give and we will love others. We are fulfilling the law of loving our neighbor and loving others and not committing these things, breaking these laws out of love. But it first comes from our love for God. And wanting to love him and wanting to give and wanting to obey his commands. So we show that we are Jesus' disciples through our ahava to God, right? Keeping his commands and obeying him and loving him. And our ahava to others. Giving to others. Putting others first. So love is always connected directly to an action. And when we hear the Shema, it's more than just loving God. But it's giving all we have to him, loving him with all that we have, and 
doing it for the rest of our lives, being a witness. In fact, that word, I, now I heard this in a sermon, so I, I haven't looked it up. I don't know, um, I don't know he, uh, Jewish tradition, um, but I heard this in a sermon. Um, someone said that uh, at a Jewish wedding, the uh, rabbi was talking about ahava, and he said that when you actually say the word ahava, that the Aleph is actually a silent letter. So um, so actually when you, we say ahava, and I say it with a horrible Michigan accent, sorry. <laughs> but it's actually a silent letter. So how it's really pronounced is hava, right? It's a, you breathe in. You're actually breathing in that first letter, hava. So we're, you know, it's, it's almost like we're breathing in the breath of God, and then when they breathe out that last letter, they hold it for as long as they can. So it holds out ahava till you're, you know, till it's just out of breath, till it's out of sound. And this symbolizes at the wedding ceremony, this symbolizes the act of loving and giving until your breath runs out. We should be loving and giving not only to God, but to others, until our breath runs out. And so it doesn't stop if your kids are grown up. It doesn't stop if you don't have kids. It's what we are called to do as followers of Jesus. We are to love and to give until our, la- our very last breath. And we are to be his witnesses. And so we are to um, know God's word, and we are to live it. And in the Shema, so it goes on to say, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. So that's what we're supposed to do, right? We love God. We obey his commands. We obey them by serving others, putting others first. And then in verse 7, it says, Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. What this is talking about is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of loving God and being a witness and showing others. Impress, and, of course, first impressing them on your children. We need to first know God's word. Parents need to know God's word first before they can impress it on their children. And so one of the things that always kind of drives me nuts. <laughs> when I talk to people about serving in children's ministry, whenever I say, like, oh, there's a shortage of, you know, we need nursery workers, and people are always like, well, are the, are the parents required to serve? Well, yes, they are, but I'm sorry, but the nursery is, like, the worst place for a parent to be because they're at home with their kids. You saw the string, okay? <laughs> Do you know how tiring and long that is? Right? They're to be the primary faith trainers, but they can't do all these hours if they don't get fed themselves, if they don't get to sit in teaching, if they don't get to sit and worship God or just, uh, just sit without someone pulling on them and grabbing them and mom, 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 mom. They need, they need this, little, this little blue thing, this little blue inch. <laughs> is what gets parents through the rest of the week, right? And so, yes, of course, parents, we ask them to serve, but we also, we need to serve the parents. 
We need to let them have that time so that they can be fed to continue what God has called them to do, which is to train their children in their home. But they can't do it if they're empty. They can't do it if they're burnt out and not getting fed themselves. And we see that in the Bible over and over, especially in the Old Testament, over and over and over again about Israel and their failure to do the one thing God asked them to do, which was to teach the next generation, to pass on his word and his commands to the next generation over and over and over again. We see it with even people who um, served the Lord. I think it's amazing. Aaron's sons, meh. Eli's sons, Eli the priest, meh. Samuel's sons, meh. <laughs> right? And as a pastor's kid, I, I mean, I am so thankful for, you know, my dad and my upbringing because he always put family first. And I do the same with my children, I hope, because I, we see that in ministry. And I think that's what happened to the priest's kids in the Bible was they were too concerned with the ministry and the church that they neglected their home. And we can't do that. We need to make sure that we're not neglecting our home, that we're not too caught up in the things of church to not do our first ministry, which is in the home. And so Israel continues to fail at passing on their faith. Um, they fail to do it in their own homes. We know in the book of Judges, it talks about, you know, it says over and over and over again that um, at this time, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Right? Everyone just did whatever they wanted over and over. And then God would, they'd get um, taken over, attacked by someone. God would raise up a judge. A judge would deliver them. Okay, yay, we will serve you, God. And then how, much, you know, <laughs> how many years later, they fall right back into idolatry, right back into not keeping their covenant, not passing on their faith, and this cycle goes over and over again. And then we have the period of the kings, where we know the kings, again, same thing, over and over, idolatry, and not passing on the faith, not keeping the covenant. And the prophets warned of God's judgment against this, and against Israel and Judah for not keeping the covenant. And the, and the covenant isn't, if you read this, it's not just loving the Lord, it's passing it on to the next generation. And so I, um, I love this story in Jeremiah chapter 35. It's just this random little story, a little chapter. You know, so much is going on in Jeremiah, and they're, you know, they're, he's, warning, um, he's warning Israel, and all these, these things are going on. But then there's this little story about uh, the Rechabites. Um, and I meant to bring my Bible up here to read it. There it is. There's a Bible. Look at that. There's a Bible up here. <laughs> so I'm going to read to you from Jeremiah 35. Isaiah, Jeremiah, here we go. All right, the obedience of the Rechabites. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them, and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers. Then offer them wine to drink. So I took Jazaniah, like Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, son of Habizaniah and his brothers and all his sons and all the and the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them to the house of the Lord into the chamber of the sons. Okay, blah blah blah. He brings them into the house. Okay, we get it. Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, "Drink wine." 
But they answered, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, You shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, and you will not sow seed. You shall not plant or have a vineyard, but you shall live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us, to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, and not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard or field or seed, but we have lived in tents, and we have obeyed and done all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. And I'm going to skip down a little bit here. So then God says to Jeremiah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord? The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept. And they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's commands. I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. I have sent you to all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds and do not go after other gods to serve them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers. But you did not incline your ear or listen to me. This is like the perfect, like, why can't you be more like your brother <laughs> message, right? The sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have kept the command their father gave them. But these people have not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'm bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them. Because I have spoken to them and they haven't listened. I've called them and they have not answered. But to the house of the Rechabites, Jeremiah said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab, your father, and kept all his precepts and done all that he commanded you, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall never lack a man to stand before me. So the Rechabites are not Israelites. They're actually related to the Moabites. So they're kind of like a um, kind of like a cousin to Moses through marriage or something like that. Um, I don't know. I don't know the whole story, the whole family tree there. But they're not the Israelites, okay? They're not, you know, God's chosen people. And yet God chooses to bless them because he sees their faithfulness. They were obedient to what their father, which when you say father, it's not talking about like the guy right before you. This was 200 years. 200 years of generations that passed on the command of their father and they obeyed it for 200 years. It's amazing. And God, God um, commended that and blessed them and said that there would always be someone in their family, a man to stand before him, meaning a man to, who would always serve him. And that, I mean, that's an amazing blessing. Isn't it an amazing blessing to know that in your family, someone will always follow God? Isn't that what we want for our children and our children's children and, and on and on and on? So why were they so obedient? What's the difference between them and the Israelites? Well, what I think it is, is that there was two parts to what they had been commanded. It was not to drink wine, but the second one was not to settle anywhere. They were to be nomads. They were to wander, right, and live in tents. They weren't to settle. This was not to be their home. 
And that's what God commands of us. This is not our home, right? We're aliens in this world. We're only here temporary. And where the Israelites failed was they went into Canaan and they allowed themselves to be soaked up by the culture, to be swayed by the culture around them. Instead of being set apart, instead of being witnesses and set apart, they gave in to the culture. And so we are to be aliens in this world, right? We are to not give in to the culture around us, but to be a witness. Now, if you want to change the culture, if you want to change the culture of this world, you have to change a generation. It's not going to be done by boycotting some corporation. I'm sorry, but if you, your boycott of them isn't going to affect them. It's just not, you know, it, I mean, it's good. I'm not saying don't do that. If you feel convicted to do that, that's fine. But what I'm saying is that's not how we're going to change the world if we all boycott something or if we all write a letter or if we all, you know, shout really loud or, you know, put things on social media. That's not going to change the world. You want to change the world, you got to change the next generation. you got to change the next lawmakers. You're not going to change these lawmakers. They're set in their ways. We have to change the next ones. The lawmakers you want to change are in the nursery. Like you literally have to change them in the nursery. <laughs> Diaper joke. <laughs> but I mean, it's the truth. If you want to change the world, you have to change the next generation. You have to change what they're learning. You have to, that's how you're going to change the culture. I read a quote today that, whoo, it was like, oh, it was fire. It said, Anytime you feel the urge to critique the next generation, remember, they are not the rebellious weed, but the fruit of the seeds we planted. I'm going to read it one more time. Anytime you feel the urge to critique the next generation, remember, they are not the rebellious weed, but the fruit of the seeds we planted. What seeds are we planting? What seeds are we planting in this next generation? The next generation, we want to, you know, everyone is all up in arms about millennials, right, and Gen Z. I'm sorry, but those generations have passed. I'm a millennial. We're set in our ways, right? Like, we're graduated, we're getting married, having kids, we're working. You got to look past that. You got to, you know, we need young people. You got to look past it. We need babies. We need preschoolers, those are the ages that we should be impacting. Now, we don't forsake the others, right? We still need to pour in. We still need a youth group. We still need, we're not forsaking anybody. We need to pour into people, but it is so much harder. It is so much harder to um, reach a teenager than it is to reach a preschooler. Because a teenager, you have to first pull out all the lies that they believe and have been taught to then put truth in there. A preschooler, just, they'll believe anything you tell them. <laughs> and they won't talk back either, usually. <laughs> so we need to pour into those younger generations. And, of course, this whole message is about being the primary faith trainer. That is the role, that is the responsibility that God puts on parents. It's not up to just the church to reach the next generation, to reach preschoolers. You know, it's just not going to happen. I lost my string. Because they're here, you know, this much. 
It's not going to happen. And for, like, for a preschooler, they're not even listening that much. <laughs> right? It's like this little, <laughs> this little millimeter <laughs> is how much time you have to actually, like, get some biblical truth in there. So it is the role of the parents, and we do want to support the parents. And there are ways that parents can be the primary faith trainer. Number one is to have faith talks. These are formal and informal conversations, right? The Shema says to impress them on your children. Talk about it all day long. You're looking for opportunities to insert your faith all day long. Um, my daughter, right now, she's going to gymnastics camp this week, and she had a rough time yesterday. And she was telling me, Mom, these kids, they say bad words, and they cut in front of me in line, and the teacher says it's fine, and it is not fine. They're breaking the rules, and they're saying these bad words. And I was able to have this conversation with her of, you know, honey, you're used to being around kids at church and kids who grow up in Christian homes. These kids do not. We don't know where these kids are coming from. So you have to be the light. You have to shine your light while you're there. You, you know, you have to be the one to shine your light. And I was able to have this faith talk with her on the way to gymnastics. You know, it wasn't something that it was like, okay, I need to sit down with my devotional book, and we're going to talk about it. We, it wasn't planned. It was something that just came up. But it was a lesson, a faith lesson that she needed to learn. And it was just in the car while we were talking. And then we moved, you know, moved on to the next thing. The second thing, so you want to have these faith talks, formal, informal, um, where you do sit down and, or it's just as you're going. God sightings. These are a big thing we do at Vacation Bible School every year. We, every day we open with God sightings, and we ask the kids, where have you seen God at work in your life? This is something that we should be asking kids all the time. We should be asking each other this. How's God working in your life? Where have you seen God today? What's your God sighting for today? It might be, you know, something in creation. I saw a beautiful flower, and it just reminded me of God's beauty, right? Or it might be something or s that someone did for you. But it's training ourselves and training our children to look for God. Look for evidence of God in our lives. And then the last thing um, we want parents to do is to celebrate milestones, in a child's life. This is how you can pass on your faith is to celebrate milestones, which we want to partner with here in the church community. We celebrate milestones like a baby dedication, salvation, baptisms. We celebrate them when they're moving from, you know, kids ministry to youth ministry. We celebrate them when they graduate high school. We want to celebrate these major faith milestones in their lives and show them this is important. It's important to you and it's important to us. But the other reason these milestones are important is because they're excellent times to be having these faith talks, right? To prepare them for what's next or to prepare them for, you know, what they're going through as we prepare them for baptism or prepare them for graduation. So these are things that parents can be doing every day. Parents, grandparents, anyone, anyone can be doing these things. We should be doing these things every day in our own lives. Right? We should be talking about our faith. We should be looking for evidence of God. But how can we as the church support parents and support grandparents? We have a lot of grandparents that bring their kids to church here. And we want to support them. What, what is our role? If parents are to be the primary faith trainer and we only get the kids for an hour, what are we supposed to do? Well, 
I've heard that you guys have been learning about the fivefold ministry on Sunday mornings. Um, I'm always downstairs. <laughs> um, but I've heard that you've been learning about the fivefold, right, on Sunday mornings. And so the role, I mean, that's the role of the church, right? Ephesians chapter 4 says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So if the parent's role is to pass on their faith, the church's role is to prepare and equip them to do that. We are to come alongside parents. As the parent learns, they demonstrate to their child what they're learning. And we already talked about how important it is for parents to be fed, right? They can't feed, um, or they can't be fed if they're constantly being the ones doing the feeding, right? I don't know. Have you ever made, like, a meal and then, like, you never, like, you never get to actually sit down and eat it because you're constantly, like, you know, oh, this needs to be cut. Oh, I need more water. And by the time you go to sit down, you're like, I'm not even hungry anymore. Because I just fed everybody else. And that's how it is with our faith. We're so tired of taking care of kids and feeding them and, you know, spiritually and dealing with all these things that it's like, well, I'm just tired. I just don't want to go to church today. I don't want to get up. Right? We need to let parents have that time. Of course we want them to serve because that we want them to be an example to their children of what it means to serve. But we also want to allow them to be fed and be in service. So um, how can you use your fivefold gift to serve families, to serve children? Everyone, you know, when I talk to people about serving in children's ministry, they say, well, I'm not really a teacher. Good. I got teachers. <laughs> I'm not looking just for teachers, right? How can you use your gifting for children, for families? Can you give a word of encouragement to a mom who's struggling, or maybe, you know, a new parent? Can you pray for, for children? Um, I don't remember who this was, but I, I heard a story of um, in our nursery. My, I think my mom was telling me that she walked by the nursery one day, and there weren't any kids in the nursery, but the nursery worker was still in there just praying. She said that, you know, there's no kids here today, so I'm just going to spend the time praying for them. And she spent the whole service in the, sink, er, in the nursery with no children but praying for every child and every family that went in there. I mean, think about it. You can sit in the nursery and hold a, a baby and pray for an hour over them. Think of, think of that. What, how can that impact someone? That they're, they're being prayed over from such a young age. That's how you change a culture. That's how you change a generation. Um, we, need, we were just talking in our, in, as pastors yesterday in our staff meeting about shepherds. We need shepherds for these children. We don't always, we, yes, we need teachers. Teachers are great. But we also need people to just love the kids. We need people to come and, and show these kids love. We have kids who come who are hungry because they don't have food at home. We have kids who come who, you know, the things that they hear and see at home would break your heart. 
they need to come here and be loved. They need someone to speak encouragement and love over them, pray for them. And so we need to use our giftings for families. Maybe, you know, maybe it's not in children's ministry. Maybe it's connecting with um, a, a man or a woman in, at a fellowship time. You know, how can I pray for you? I see you've got, you know, all these kids, your hands full. How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? Is there, you know, is there something, I don't know, send them a Starbucks gift card. Man, that'd be really encouraging. <laughs> oh, wait, we're boycotting Starbucks, sorry. Um, so, but how can you encourage and support parents as they are doing what God has called them to do? Secondly, the role of the church is accountability. Without commitment to structures and relationships that establish boundaries and hold us to certain limitations, our sin nature drives us to ignore such restrictions, no matter how healthy or sensible those contours may be. So again, as, as um, parents, we can get distracted by so many things. There's so many things that look good, but are actually distractions from what our main purpose is to be, which is to be the primary faith trainer. But it looks good. We want our kids to be the best, to do the best, to be healthy, right? All these things are good, but are they distracting us from the main thing, which is a relationship with Jesus, our love for God. And so church is here to, be, to keep us accountable. And again, that's not just for parents. That's for anybody. We come to church to be held accountable, right, so that we're not distracted by the things of this world. And lastly, it's for community. The role of the church is for community. It's to learn from multiple generations. It's to learn from the pioneers who have come before us, and it's to instill in the next generations. The church is meant to be multiple generations pouring into each other. That's what community, that's what family is all about. That's what family ministry is all about. The church is just family ministry. That is the church. Multiple generations coming together for one purpose, and that is to love God with all that we have, and then to pass that on to the next generation.